Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 33. Psalm 33, hear now the word of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, did you notice what's missing? There's no title. There's no inscription at the beginning of the psalm. In Psalms 1 and 2, there was no title. But from Psalm 3 to Psalm 32, there's been a title before every psalm. All of the other psalms in Book 1 are psalms of David. All of the surrounding psalms. Are, are calling us to sing these songs in and with David. It's the Davidic voice that we've gotten so used to hearing over and over again through book one. Psalm 33 does not. But then look at the content of Psalm 33. There's, there is no first person singular speaker. It's a first person plural. We, our. Most of the psalms that we've been singing recently distinguish between the I, first person singular, the king, and the we, the people. Psalm 33 does not. There is a king in Psalm 33, verse 16, but he's a passive figure who cannot be saved by a great army. So this reinforces for us the importance of these titles in the Psalms for giving us direction as to how to sing the song. When there's a, it's a Psalm of David, we're to sing it in the voice of David. David is the first person singular of the psalm. By omitting any title, Psalm 33 gives us no particular direction. In other words, sing this song in your own voice, in the voice of the people of God. And you can think about this in you know, 
in, when they were written, they were to be sung in the temple by the Levites. So in a sense, you're hearing the Levitical choir singing Psalm 33 to the congregation. But when you think about then how Paul tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, there's a way in which we become the Levitical choir that is singing Psalm 33 to the nations. Actually, as you, know, it, it, don't, it, as you sing this, we are singing this to the nations. That's very much the direction of Psalm 33 as it's being sung, it's being, it's being sung with Israel, by Israel, by the Levitical choir in a sense for the people of God. But then watch how this psalm keeps going out to the nations. What Psalm 33 is doing is taking all that we've been learning, all that we've been singing in these last weeks as we go through Book 1 of the Psalter, and showing how all of these psalms, as they're, as they're about David and the people of God, as they're about Jesus and us, this goes out to the nations. This isn't just stopping with, with Israel. This doesn't just stop with the church. The church becomes the Levitical choir singing this song to the nations. Our New Testament lesson comes from Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, the first 16 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Hebrews 11 follows a long-standing pattern of ancient preaching that takes a, a single theme and runs through the stories of the Old Testament, illustrating that theme throughout the scriptures. 
in Hebrews 11, that theme is faith. After giving a basic definition of faith in verse 1, Hebrews moves from creation through the whole Old Testament, showing how faith is taught and illustrated in the Scriptures, and pointing out that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Sometimes our faith is very short-sighted. Sometimes we think, ah, I believe that God will do this in my lifetime. Are you sure? We believe that God will do this because He's promised. But when? How long? I think of Rex and Becca spending all those years in China amongst Tibetan folks seeking to prepare the ground so that someone could build a foundation, so that someday there'll be a church. There's still not yet one. Does that mean the promises of God have failed? Not in the least. In the same way, what are we doing here? Are we thinking of ourselves as, ah, we are the ones who will do it? Or are we saying, no, we want to prepare the ground so that someday someone can lay a foundation. So that, what are we doing here? Have, are, we, are we going to receive the promises in our lifetime? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, we have received the thing they, was, they were looking for, it because they were looking for Jesus. We have received Jesus. We have received his spirit. But in terms of all of those temporal things that we hope to see, we believe that God will do what he promises. Are we willing to live by that faith? To walk in that faith? Psalm 33 is doing something very similar to what Hebrews 11 is talking about. Indeed, Psalm 33 is, in a sense, the, the, one of the foundational passages that Hebrews 11 is building on. Psalm 33 takes the theme of the word of the Lord and says that God's word is characterized by chesed, by steadfast love. Psalm 33 is here in, in, in book one of the Psalms. It's coming to us in the context of the kingdom, the son of David sitting on the throne. And so Psalm 33 moves us from creation through kingdom, showing us how the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord because the word of the Lord goes forth to all the earth. Now, Psalm 33 has 22 verses. Uh, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, but this is not an acrostic. We've encountered a few acrostics as we've been going through the, the Psalms. Acrostics work their way through the Hebrew alphabet successively, each stanza beginning with the next letter of the alphabet. This is not an acrostic. It's what's called a quasi-acrostic. Why do we call it that? Well, Psalm 34 is an acrostic, the next psalm. Psalm 33 has 22 stanzas, and it's a quasi-acrostic. Only reason why I'm mentioning this to you, you might be like, what is this obscure thing doing here? Well, we'll see the same thing in reverse order in Psalms 37 and 38. Psalm 37 will be the actual acrostic, and Psalm 38, the quasi-acrostic. Okay, you got quasi, actual, actual, quasi. That's a chiastic pattern. 
when you start seeing chiastic patterns in the Psalms, then you know there's something about what's in the middle that's going to be important. So Psalms 35 and 36 are going to be at the middle of this pattern that we're seeing here, this little mini pattern here in book one. Now, I'm just going to give you the preview of where we're going. Psalms 35 and 36 are at the heart of this final section of book one. Psalm 35 will be another Psalm of the Cross, speaking of the Davidic king now as the servant of the Lord. And Psalm 36, we'll put that in the title of the psalm, of David, the servant of the Lord. So now David, the servant of the Lord, is going to be the center of this section that we're talking about. Psalms 33 and 34 will set up this with a statement of the underlying reality of who God is and what God has said that is at the heart of what God is saying to us. Psalms 35 and 36 will focus on David, the suffering servant of the Lord. And then Psalms 37 and 38 will remind us that in the midst of the kingdom, in the midst of the time when the king is sitting on the throne, things are not yet as they should be. Sound familiar? We, we don't yet see all things under his feet. But as Hebrews 2 says, we see Jesus. We see the suffering servant of the Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. And we see that though not everything is the way it should be, God's word remains true. He is faithful. His steadfast love endures forever. But sometimes we don't see it yet. And so we wait for the Lord. But let's not go too far right now. If I'm I'm not careful, I'll turn this into a lament sermon. It's not a lament. This is a song of thanksgiving and joy in the steadfast love of the Lord. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now now notice who's being called to shout for joy. O you righteous. Not the wealthy, not the happy, not any measure of worldly prosperity, but the righteous. So where do you find your joy? What is it that brings happiness? Well, as Psalm 32 just pointed out, which you saw last time, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Where is blessedness found? True happiness is found in the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 33 is plainly responding to Psalm 32. In fact, Psalm 33 begins with the very theme that Psalm 32 ended with. It is fitting, it is proper for the upright to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Psalm 32 had identified us as sinners, those who have confessed our sin to God. How can the sinners of Psalm 32 now be called the righteous in Psalm 33? Well, that's what we saw last time in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. What makes the righteous upright is that their sin is not counted against them. When I tried to cover my own sin, that didn't go well. But God promises that he forgives the sins of those who confess to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we try to cover up our sins and pretend they're not there, that simply adds dishonesty to whatever other sins are there. And that's why we confess our sins week by week to the Lord. Our practice of corporate confession together 
should help us to get in the habit of confessing our sins to God daily. After all, the, the only way we can be righteous before God is if God does not hold our sin against us. And that can only happen if we confess our iniquity to the Lord. But those who have confessed their sins to a righteous God now come to God as those who are upright. And so that's why the psalmist will now speak to us as the righteous. O you righteous, shout to the Lord, give thanks to Him. And so we give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings, sing to Him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Musical instruments are appropriate in the worship of God. And if you, if you play an instrument and, and, and you want to join the musicians, come talk to us, let us know. We're always looking for more. But we're called to, to play skillfully, to play well. We should not be half-hearted in our musical praise, which is also applied to our shouting and singing. Okay, I know I'm talking to a bunch of Presbyterians here. Shouting in worship is a good thing. Uh, we did a number of joint services with Greater Mount Calvary Missionary Baptist for a number of years. and it was you know, They were trying to teach us how to shout. And we haven't learned very well, but we can keep, you know, keep working on it. But the psalmist says that we should shout to the Lord. Loud shouts. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay. Where's we got? Good. But... And then he says that we should sing to the Lord a new song. Now, that, some people take that to mean, ah, oh, we should be writing new songs. But if we only ever sang brand new songs, we would never sing the same song twice. And in fact, we couldn't be singing Psalm 33 because, well, it's already been written. So new song does not refer to a new composition. Rather, when you look at how the word new song is used, it's used nine times in the scriptures, six times in the Psalms, uh, once in Isaiah and twice in Revelation. And every time it's used, it is speaking of the victory of God over his and our enemies. The new song in Scripture is the victory song. When God gives his people victory over their enemies, uh, when, as Hebrews 11 says, sort of all these died in faith not having received the promises, when the promise is fulfilled, the singing of the new song is not, you have to write a new song for that moment, but actually, that, that's when, when you're singing the, the Psalm 33, you're like, ah, now I get it. It's the same sort of thing that goes on when we're told that God revealed his name Yahweh to Moses at Mount Sinai. And we find out that people were calling on the name of Yahweh all the way, all the way back to basically the time of the flood. So, the name was known, but only at Sinai. Did God reveal his name in a new way that it may have been known, but now it's being understood in a brand new way. And Augustine said it well when he said, people stuck in the old life have no business with this new song. Only those who are new persons can learn it, renewed by grace and throwing off the old, sharers already in the new covenant, which is the kingdom of heaven. All our love yearns toward that, and in its longing, our love sings a new song. Let us sing this new song, not with our tongues, but with our lives. And sure, sometimes it also means writing new songs, but you don't have to write a new song in order to sing a new song. Have you ever heard a sermon that made you think about your salvation in a new light? And then the hymn that we sang after the sermon gained new meaning as you're like, 
Oh, that's what it's saying. In that day, you sang a new song, even though you had sung those words before. Psalm verses 4 and 5 then give us the reason for praising God. His word is upright. His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. All essentially saying the same thing. How can God's people be righteous? Because the word of our God is upright and therefore he loves righteousness. Now, verses 6 through 12 will then praise the word of the Lord. Verses 13 to 19 will praise the steadfast love of the Lord. So we start by looking at how Psalm 33 talks about the word. Now, maybe the psalmist did not yet think of the word as referring to a person. That is where the story is going. The word of the Lord is upright because the word is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 6 clearly points us back to the creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The word of the Lord and the breath of his mouth both appear back in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and it was so. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Now, maybe it's not always as clear in our English translations, but When it says, by the breath of his mouth, it's by the spirit of his mouth. It's the word ruach, the same word translated spirit in Genesis 1. Word and breath, word and spirit go together. After all, it requires breath to speak. Even so, word and spirit always go together throughout the scriptures. The word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord worked together in creation, and they continue to work throughout the history of redemption. Verse 7 is an interesting way of putting it. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. Have you ever seen somebody gather waters as a heap? Try to heap waters up. What, they, they run away. You can't heap water. I'm so glad that the translators kept the word translated this way rather than try to say it some other way. Because... This is the word that you use for like a heap of stones or a heap of grain or a heap of rubble. And it says that God God gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. This is, this is the power of our God. He can, he can heap waters. And, and actually, uh, there's another place where this phrase is used. It's when Exodus 15 tells the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, the Red Sea stood up like a heap when God spoke. What the psalmist is doing is connecting creation and new creation. God puts his ocean depths into storehouses. There's all of these... these we saw a couple weeks ago in Psalm 29, we heard of the, the voice of the Lord above the waters, and we heard the, about the ancient Canaanite stories about Baal and his fight with the sea. And we saw that the voice of the Lord is over the waters because our God is the true God. And here we see the same sort of image. In the same way that we might store grain in the storehouse, God stores ocean depths. In the same way that we might have heaps of straw, God has heaps of oceans. And this connects the creation story with the crossing of the Red Sea, how the Red Sea stood up in heaps when God spoke. 
And again, we keep seeing word and spirit at work together. Even as the first creation began with the spirit hovering over the waters, even so the exodus signified the coming of the new creation as the spirit led Israel through the waters. And you keep seeing that going forward as as the baptism of Jesus, when the Spirit came upon Jesus, when he passed through the waters of baptism. And at Pentecost, once again, the Spirit came upon the church, when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Word and Spirit continuing to work through the waters of judgment, the waters of baptism, the waters that bring life. How should we respond to all this? Well, verse 8 tells us, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Not just Israel, not just the righteous, but all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. I said earlier that this psalm is about blowing up past Israel. Now this comes to all the earth, all the world, all nations. The gospel is not just for the church. The good news comes to everyone. The good news comes to you. You should fear God. You should stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. When God speaks, things happen. And by the way, that's also why God is silent sometimes. It is not yet time for something to happen. The silence of God is often very difficult for us to deal with. We want God to do it now. But God's speech is powerful. When he commands, it stands firm. It happens the way that he says. And so when he is silent, it is time for us to be patient and to wait upon the Lord. But you can see how God's word is powerful in verses 10 through 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The peoples have their plans. The nations take counsel together to accomplish their purposes. But as we saw in Psalm 2, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs, knowing that their plans and purposes will come to nothing because they have not bowed the knee to Him. When you listen to the promises and predictions of the rulers of this age, you realize quickly they they cannot accomplish the things that they wish. We've gained a lot of technical skill. We're very sophisticated in our ability to predict the weather, to manage the economy, to heal diseases. But let's be honest, we still can't control the storms. Even our best efforts cannot prevent economic disasters. And our medicines have helped create superbugs that we don't know how to treat. And, oh, sure, I'm sure everything that's currently out there we'll figure out eventually. And in the process, create more problems for ourselves. That's the way the world works under sin and misery. We're never going to figure everything out and be done figuring it out because this is a broken world. The Lord frustrates the plans of the people. But against the plans and counsels of the nations, verse 11 stands as a clear contrast. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. The Lord thwarts the counsel of the nations by His word, but no one thwarts His counsel. If the word of the Lord is what makes things happen, where does that word come from? God speaks. 
what He has purposed. His purposes, His plans, His counsel stands forever. If God has said, this is what I will do, then you can be certain that He will do it. God really did make this world. And when we live contrary to the way God made us, it doesn't really work. So live with confidence that God's word is true. Don't be afraid of the counsels of the nations. Fear the Lord. Therefore, the psalmist says in verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. In David's day, Israel was the nation whose God was Yahweh. Today, it's the church of Jesus Christ. We are the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We are the people he has chosen to bring this nation, this message to all nations. That's what Psalm 33 is doing. That this one nation that has been chosen is called to bring this message to all nations. After all, God had promised Abraham that it would be through his seed that all nations would be blessed. And if God has promised, then he will do it. And that's why the psalmist turns to praise the steadfast love, the chesed, the covenant faithfulness of the Lord in verses 13 to 19. And chesed has been translated a variety of ways. Steadfast love, covenant loyalty. The King James even coined a new English word to translate it. Loving kindness. They couldn't figure out one word, so they mashed two together and said, let's try that. But we saw it earlier in verse 5. The earth is full of the chesed of the Lord. It's often paired with the word faithfulness, as in verse 4. The same God who is faithful to his word is also loyal to his covenant. And verses 13 to 15 set this up because having emphasized the importance of the people whom he has chosen as his heritage, Psalm 33 turns to all humanity. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Every human being belongs to God. He made them all. He knows their hearts. He observes all their deeds. And the same God who fashions the hearts of them all observes all their deeds. He knows your heart. He doesn't just know your outward deeds. And he's not just a dispassionate outside observer. He is the one who fashioned your heart as a craftsman. And as a craftsman, he loves that which he made. And as God watches, as he looks down and observes all the children of Adam, he sees the hopes and dreams of them all. The the psalmist starts with kings and princes in verses 16 and 17. Notice the, the use of the word great. A king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. How do you measure greatness? Greatness as the world measures it is found in strength and power and numbers. But greatness cannot save you. You want to make America great again? According to Psalm 33, that goal is a false hope for salvation. It's not that we should seek greatness in a different sense. It's that greatness is the wrong goal. Do not seek to be great. Do not seek great armies, great strength, even a great economy. Because no power, no economy, no army, no force on earth can deliver the kings of the earth. Because who 
is the one they have to be most concerned about. It's not, just a hint, it's not Russia, it's not China, it's not, you know, Muslim extremism. The Lord, our God, is the one the kings of the earth should be most worried about. Because the eye of the Lord looks down from heaven. And the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. We had heard earlier that the nations fear the Lord. The eye of the, of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. If you have a great army, if it just means that more people die in battle, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Put your hope in the steadfast love, the chesed of the Lord, the covenant faithfulness of God. Or as Jesus will make the same point, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We saw earlier that the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. If, if you are righteous, if you are upright, if you are one who has been forgiven by God, then righteousness should characterize you. When righteousness and justice are paired together like they were earlier, righteousness is a broader concept than just doing the right thing. Righteousness refers to how do you order your community, whether as a, in your household, in your business, in your in your in the church, in your in your town. A righteous community is a well-functioning community. A righteous home is one in which all the members of the family have peace and their relations are characterized by faithfulness. When there are problems, because every home has problems, they deal with those problems in the way that God says. Repent, forgive, and seek to love better next time. Righteousness in that city, in that that sense, can characterize a family, a neighborhood, a business, a city, or a nation. Now, justice has to do with particular cases. So, in in a righteous community, justice will be a very common occurrence. In an unrighteous community, justice can still happen. Think of Jesus' story of the the woman who goes to the unjust judge and pursues relentlessly until she gets justice. So, justice can still happen in an unrighteous community. But if a community is fundamentally disordered, there will be a lot less justice to be found. And so we ought to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this is supposed to characterize us as we live before God. And you see this clearly in the conclusion to Psalm 33 as we seek the Lord, wait for the Lord, hope in the Lord. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. This theme of waiting is a a central theme in this last section of the Psalms. We've already heard it in Psalms 25, 27, 31, and now 33. And we'll hear it again in 37, 38, and 40. In the whole rest of the book of Psalms, there will only be four times this the word wait or waiting on God will be used. So this is a very central theme of this section. Waiting for the Lord requires discipline and patience. There is a certain holy expectancy in waiting for the Lord. And sometimes the psalmist waits patiently in the midst of trials with lamentation and mourning. Here in Psalm 33, the psalmist is waiting joyfully with confidence and hope, with singing and thanksgiving. Waiting on the Lord is not just something you do in troubled times. Waiting on the Lord is also something you do when things are going well. Wait on the Lord in every moment, in every situation. We don't like to wait. 
but it's good for us. He is our help and our shield. He is the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our heart is glad as we wait because we trust in His holy name. In our waiting, in our hoping, we trust in the Lord's covenant faithfulness. And so we say, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. The Lord calls all nations to fear Him, to put their hope in Him. We may find it hard to imagine sometimes, but then again, our imagination is pretty feeble. That's where it was interesting reading John Chrysostom's baptismal instructions over the last few weeks, because John Chrysostom was, was a pastor in Antioch, modern-day Turkey, a city of about 150,000 people, 100,000 of whom were members of his church. I mean, lots of different buildings, but two-thirds of the population of that city were Christians. He would have hundreds of people every year coming to him. He was, he was one of the lead catechists. Hundreds of people coming to him for, for instruction for how to, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, you're like, whoa. Yeah, God did that. Does he promise that he's going to do it in every generation, in every time, in every place? Well, no. But that's where recognizing that God has done great deeds and This is where we can continue to have confidence going forward, knowing that he will continue the work that he has begun in Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord has converted Egypt, Syria, and Turkey before. That's not a difficulty for God. So don't be afraid. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you, because you have been faithful to all generations, and even as you have promised, so may your word come to pass, so may your spirit continue to be sent forth throughout all the nations, that as you have begun, so may you continue, as you, as you have triumphed over the powers of sin and death and the devil in the raising up of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, from the dead, so may you continue, our Father, to, to accomplish your purposes, that that the nations might know that Jesus is Lord. We thank you that you have continued this. And though sometimes it looks dark and gloomy where we live, yet we, we marvel at your steadfast love and faithfulness that you are showing throughout the world as so many hundreds and thousands and millions have come to Jesus and continue to to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. May your word continue to go forth with great power and may we walk with confidence and hope in you that we might not be be turned aside by the the, the pleasures of of this of this age that we might might not be turned aside by by false hopes and dreams. But may we hold fast and rejoice and give thanks to you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.